0: Greetings and welcome to the latest edition of the AMSSM Sports MedCast, produced in collaboration with the BJSM. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden, and I'm honored to be joined today by two distinguished guests as we discuss the topic of COVID myocarditis and its implications for the safety of collegiate athletics. Dr. John Dresner is the Director of Sports Cardiology at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, and a past president of the AMSSM. Well, Dr. Mike Ackerman is the director of both the Windland Smith Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic and Sudden Death Genomics Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and president of the Sudden Arrhythmia Death Syndromes Foundation. Gentlemen, let me start off by thanking you both for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedules to speak with us today. Thanks for having us, Devin.
1: Yeah, thanks, Devin. It's great to be with you and great to see you again, Dr. Dresner.
0: Thank you. So this has been a very busy week, and the landscape of collegiate athletics is rapidly shifting, as both of you know. Uh, the Pac-12 and Big Ten have canceled fall sports uh, earlier this week, with the Pac-12 uh, pushing things back all the way into the next fiscal year, so affecting winter sports as well. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Power 5 FBS conferences, uh, the ACC, Big 12, and SEC continue to plan for holding the uh, fall Collegiate sports. Also of note, NCAA senior VP of basketball, Dan Gavitt, went on the record today saying there will be an NCAA basketball tournament. So just one more point of interest as we get ready to record. So John, with all that as background, I'll start with you and ask if you could kind of d- describe for us the uh, link in concern with COVID-19 and myocarditis.
2: Sure, yeah, thanks again for having me. And it's, it's really a privilege to, to have this uh, podcast with, with, with Mike Ackerman, who I just think is uh, one of our leaders in sports cardiology and a, and a good friend as well. Um, you know, th- there, are, there are increasing concerns about effects of COVID in the hearts of athletes. And I think we first heard about COVID in the heart in, in the sickness of patients in hospitalized individuals where approximately one in four would have some myocardial injury. And, and even back in April uh, and March, there were questions being raised about what does this mean for individuals with less severe infections, with mild infections, or even asymptomatic infections? Was it possible that COVID would would impact the heart? You know, fast forward to where we are now, and there are emerging cases in both uh, collegiate, professional, and even some high school athletes that that have been diagnosed with myocarditis. Um, and who had only mild or even asymptomatic infections. Um, and um, I think Mike is gonna explore a little bit more um, some of the, the, the research that has been brought up looking at findings in the heart using MRI in individuals uh, with, with different levels of infection. Uh, but there, there are a lot of questions right now about uh, what the, the impact of, of COVID is in the heart. You know, as we all know, You know, myocarditis is inflammation in the heart muscle or myocardial injury. Um, It's been around for a long time. There's lots of viruses that have caused myocarditis in the past. Um, I've been involved in in research related to sudden cardiac death, you know, etiology for a long time. And we know in college athletes that myocarditis represents, you know, 9% of sudden cardiac death in our college athletes. And that is in the pre-COVID era. Um, I've been involved in, in cardiac screening for... A long time. This is an area of focus for me, and I cannot remember uh, a time in my career where in such a short period of time, I've heard about so many cases in college athletes being di- diagnosed with a condition that puts them at elevated risk for an arrhythmia or possibly even sudden cardiac arrest. And again, it just raises a lot of questions. We, we don't know the clinical outcomes yet. We've heard about a couple of tragedies of Of athletes that have died who've had COVID, but we don't know if the death and the COVID are related. So we have a lot more to learn.
0: Absolutely. Uh, That's an extraordinarily concerning uh, link that uh, obviously we have a lot to learn, like like you just said. Mike, do you care to share your thoughts on the potential link and uh, how you factor that in when deciding whether it may be safe to return to athletics or not?
1: Yeah, Devin and John, I think your your perspective was fantastic and and you know we've been together for a long time and we swim in the same direction often and and one of the beauties of, of true uh scientific friendship is we also have no problem to agree to disagree with each other and, and I'm not sure that I'm disagreeing with with what John just framed. I think the questions start to come and say, okay, so what? In other words, what do we do with this signal of concern? We don't know exactly what is the threat level. We're faced with a non-zero risk proposition for sure, uh, for which we face non-zero risk propositions all the time. So for example, Devin, I take care of over 3,000 patients in Mayo Clinic's Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic. Each of them have a sudden cardiac death predisposing genetic heart condition, whether it's long QT syndrome or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, every day they face a non-zero risk of a disease-triggered lethal event at some measurable tangible level for which we mitigate, neutralize, hopefully uh, eliminate. And and I think the signal is definitely a signal that is pause-worthy, It certainly makes me think about what do I advise team physicians who are contacting me for a SARS-CoV-2 positive athlete, regardless of their COVID-19 asymptomatic, to symptomatic status as to what I want their heart test to look like before I would give them green light go for a return to their sport. The other question really is does this signal of COVID-19 myocarditis where It is not new news that this virus likes to infect the heart muscle, can infect the heart muscle. And the only other organ that it can probably infect easier is respiratory epithelium. So it has tropism affinity to heart muscle. So none of that is new information. We published that four months ago uh, uh, already. Uh, But knowing that there is this additional signal of concern, what does that mean to the successful execution of a season. Should a season happen? Is that a reason to put the postponement on a season? And it was some of those issues, as I saw decisions being made by Big Ten and Pac-12, that I thought somebody needs to throw down a penalty flag and say, what are the reasons for this decision? And how much of those reasons is COVID-19 myocarditis in the bullseye? And my opinion was, if that's the reason, that is very wimpy, wobbly, weak evidence that I don't think is worthy of a system being shut down over the unknown uncertainty of COVID-19 myocarditis in an athlete. So there's kind of two very important issues that have separate levels of dissections that need to be done.
0: Absolutely. Great points. John, I think you were part of that process for the Pac-12. Could you shed a little bit, bit of light on what role the cardiovascular concerns played into the decision to cancel the season?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Mike brings up some some great points. Um, what I think the cardiac concerns um, flagged for us, it really highlighted all of the, the, the initial principles that we were discussing in terms of creating a protected environment and a safe environment for for student athletes to return to sports. You know, I I think we can all agree, you know, the pandemic is not where we want it to be, and it's not really where we predicted it to be. When we started planning as as a medical committee for what fall sports would look like, you know, back in March and April, we were expecting the pandemic to be much more under control. You know, across the, the Pac-12 currently, we have half of our schools in orange or red zones with prevalence. We have no ability for uh, uh, quick turnaround testing times uh, and no ability to test with frequency enough to identify those athletes who might be getting infected from their communities with high prevalence. And we have to remember also that, you know, the, the, the health concerns are not just for about, about the heart. You know, COVID does. It's a serious illness in some individuals. Most young people will be fine and, and have good outcomes. But occasionally there is a serious event. And the athletes are around a lot of other people. They're around staff and coaches that are older, some with health risk conditions. Um, and, and the whole situation within the athletic department needs to be, a, uh, you know, a, a safe environment. So, if, you know, as a one of the the guiding principles of sports medicine as a team physician is that, you know, we we try to um, ensure as best we can the safety of the athletes that are playing before us. And it's not that athletes can't get infected with COVID. The key is that we don't want their participation in sports to then spread it to all of their teammates or other persons. We don't want the the the, the athletics itself to be the vector where where it spreads. So how do we do that? Well, you know, if if, if the prevalence is really high, there are ways to have sports. You know, professional leagues have created bubbles. And brought people in. The NFL is is testing on a daily a daily basis. The cadence is every 24 hours we get a test and we have results back before the next practice. Um, so there are there are ways to move forward in in high prevalence situations. Um, but when you don't have that testing capacity and the supply chain, and we don't have point of care tests yet, et cetera, with hopes that maybe months from now, the prevalence will be lower and, and point of care testing or, or other testing capacity be much more available. We thought um, it was it was uh, appropriate to postpone. Um, and I think that was a decision to make And I think what the myocarditis did is it brought the health outcomes, you know, it shined a light on that and highlighted that yes, we really do need to make sure that the athletes aren't spreading the virus amongst themselves because of athletics and because we couldn't um, reasonably um, provide that kind of safe environment, I think the right decision was made.
1: And Devin, I think John brings up some perspective that is really important in the whole discussion and that is being utterly transparent as to what are the driving factors and reasons And, and what John just articulated You know, I can say, I can give a thumbs up on that and say, you know, I can't argue against that logic if those are the reasons. In other words, if we're talking about we're in places, our schools are in places that are on fire right now, and we don't have means to identify, and therefore we don't have a controlled situation, and that's a a conclusion that they say it's in the best interest of everybody not to proceed, um, then that is a judgment call. Of how they have chosen to navigate a non-risk, uh, a, a you know a a non-zero risk scenario. But I think some things need to be added to that as caveats to say what slipped into that became not by John as cover, but those reasons sort of disappeared with COVID-19 myocarditis, the spooky virus going to destroy the spooky heart, came front and center. And I think that kind of derails some of the well-thought-out decision-making that John just articulated. And so that, again, was a reason for raising a concern because I think it's fair. What happened after that paper or that pronouncement uh, and that perspective of the heart was the phone started ringing off the hook for my patients with genetic heart disease saying, I thought i have been hearing you since March saying, I'm not at any greater risk of COVID-19 outcomes because of my heart disease, for which I said, yes, that's true statement. But now I'm seeing that this thing destroys the heart muscle. So it's not a good idea then for my long QT heart to now get crazily infected by this SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we needed to say, wait, we need some perspective here. Uh, This almost never happens in a clinically significant myocarditis way in non-obese healthy young people so this is a very uncommon finding this isn't the party line observation it's one very uncommon the second thing we needed to convey to be consistent is that this virus can just as easily infect the heart of the athlete on the campus as it can the non-athlete so it's not as if it has preference to go to the athlete part. And so then we have a judgment call saying, which 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 group is safer? You know, some have put forward that the athletes are more vulnerable because they're gonna be compromising the physical distancing thing more often, whereas the non-athletes will be staying physically distanced better. We have no proof that that's actually a true statement. Some can argue that the athletes with the protocols in place by, John Jesner and the other team physicians and the trainers checking in on them, uh, referring to their symptom status, doing more testing than what the non-athlete is going to get. I could make the counter argument that their risk of SARS-CoV-2 infectivity may be well less than the non-athletes who've been invited on campus. So I think those things need to be Uh, Balanced, And then I think the straw that broke the back for me uh, was citing and hearing groups cite the Frankfurt, Germany uh, paper in JAMA cardiology from last month. It actually sat uh, for a, a month and then suddenly got brought to the spotlight that showed that this virus infects the heart of everybody and causes myocardial injury in everybody. And it wasn't everybody. It's 100 individuals with COVID 19, 100 where the average age was 50, where there is almost none that look like the 18 to 24 year old, where they said 78 had an abnormal cardiac MRI. And if you look under the hood, the definition of abnormal cardiac MRI is subject to discussion. Uh, And my point there was you cannot use that paper at all and transfer the findings at all yet to the subpopulation of otherwise 18 to 24 four-year-old healthy men and women um, at this point in time will it be a generalizable observation that this virus will light up the myocardium of young people perhaps do we know if it lights it up any differently than if we were to get cardiac mris during influenza season because in asymptomatic people with the flu or the runny nose or adenovirus or influenza, we're not getting cardiac MRIs 10 days later. And, and how many of them are getting true clinically significant myocarditis as opposed to a radiologic or an MRI-based finding of uncertain significance? So, uh, and, and if there are the reasons that John said, then I think places and programs need to say, okay, we understand those reasons and we respect those reasons. And just like other programs and other conferences, if they say, we're not in red zone territory, we have screening protocols, we have point of care testing, or we think we have this contained, then their green light go has to be equally reasonable to another conference's red light stop decision.
2: Mike, if I could, I, I think uh, those were some terrific comments, and and I agree, you know, at least for the Pac-12, it wasn't myocarditis that postponed sports. It was the pandemic that, that postponed sports, and I think that's really important for everyone uh, to understand. One of the things that I thought was unique about the document that the Pac-12 Medical Committee put out is you know, in, in speaking about their concerns, they also define the metrics in which they believe moving forward with sports is okay. And so, you know, lining up the frequency of testing with um, how endemic the and prevalent the infection is in the, in the locations where if you did have a conference that somehow was all in yellow zone, you know, locations, and you could test with relative frequency of, you know, two or three times a week and do all of the other hygiene and physical distancing um, outside of competition perhaps um, uh, or or outside of of days when you're not uh, getting uh, testing results back, et cetera, um, you you could probably move forward with with safe competition. So it wasn't a, a blanket like no sports. It was actually here are the metrics that we define as safe sports and we can't meet those right now. And when we can, we hope we can move forward while we learn a lot more about health outcomes, including These potential implications of COVID in the heart. Um, And and I completely agree with Mike about the the cardiac MRI findings that that not everything they described in that study would cross that clinical threshold to diagnose someone with myocarditis. And that is true of many of the, the expert sports cardiologists that I've talked to that we have to be careful not to jump to, let's say, universal cardiac MRI screening in athletes before we have evidence and science to support certain things, including some of the clinical outcomes. Because just like false positives can happen in other testing, false positives can be real in the cardiac MRI as well. And we could easily over-diagnose this issue in our athletes, especially when we bias an interpreter saying, you know, rule out post-COVID myocarditis, and then you get the report. And so, you know, not every little spot of uh, non-ischemic scar that's tiny or other T1 abnormality or potential tiny area of T2 is going to cross that threshold to really give you a diagnosis of myocarditis. So expertise and experience will be very important here too. And again, just we do have a lot to learn. And I like the idea um, of just, hey, let's, let's press the pause button while we learn while we learn more about this, while these other areas about prevalence and just... Public health and infection control, hopefully, we can uh, reach a better place where we can move forward with sports more safely.
0: Those are important distinctions, and I really appreciate those perspectives from both of you. One of my concerns is that we have a young, physically active age group where this is a a huge part of their lives. Uh, So, are we taking them from a situation where things would be controlled? Uh, and monitored, and are they going to continue to practice and pursue their professional dreams just without the supervision of any medical teams and the benefits of any testing? Uh, was that considered in kind of the risk benefit analysis uh, with the conference? And can you talk about uh, some of those issues?
2: Sure. I think that's a really important point. And, and I think if, if you're a team physician listening to this, I'm sure you recognize when you had athletes back in your footprint doing physically distance, you know, training, individual conditioning, weightlifting, perhaps seeing their their teammates from afar, there was an enormous benefit. Um, benefit mental health-wise, benefit physically. Um, it wasn't just about competition. And it was sort of refreshing because sports shouldn't just be about the competition and winning, there's a lot of other good that comes from it. Um, at least within the Pac-12, um, the fact that competitions are canceled doesn't mean that athletes can't be within our footprint for the school. And so we are uh, actively engaged in creating what would be safe sports practices at our institution right now for different teams. What we define as you know high-risk exposures, moderate-risk exposures, low-risk exposures, and planning out practice um, weeks, Based on the timing of testing and results, etc., so we think we can create a, a, a safe playing field. And I do think that that student athletes are being messaged very consistently by their athletic trainers, by their team docs, by their coaches, you know, to wear a mask, and you know, both at the facility and in the community. And and they may be safer when they are within our umbrella for the university and the athletic footprint. Um, and I I think there is some validity in in that. Um, Uh, in that perspective.
1: Yeah, Devin, I think the general – one of the general responses to that question of yours, it it reminds me of something that Jonathan and I have dealt with for a long time ago, where uh, the default position in sports and your heart was, if in doubt, kick them out, right? Having nothing to do with COVID-19 pandemic. But we've dealt in the sports medicine community and team physicians has been basically your heart has to be perfect to to allow you in. And then we moved and have been moving to a comfortable position of accepting non-zero risk because for the sake of the whole athlete, it may be better to let the athlete stay and play. And part of that is some of the things we observed now 20 years ago among the disqualified athletes that we were encountering is they became train wrecks they became um moving to suicidal ideation depression um bad behaviors uh unwise behaviors cutting i mean you name it we saw it and so there's a price to be paid for disqualifying an athlete and in this covid 19 pandemic the athlete themselves haven't been disqualified but in a sense They've been shut down from what their passion is. And there is a price to be paid. And those universities that are well aware of it and are trying to do the things that John described to keep community in place, to hold them accountable, to give hope that their whole dream hasn't been destroyed and that they're going to have lost their their, um, attractability to the next level, which is a real concern. And all of those things, uh, if they're not paying attention to that, there is going to be a mental health price tag that is going to get paid upon these athletes. I've seen it for 20 years now. There's no reason why this type of disqualification that we have uniquely rendered upon these athletes in the name of COVID-19 pandemic uh, could not do the same uh, very damaging sequelae on global health of the athlete.
2: Yeah, yeah. We certainly have to be. We certainly have to be cognizant of that and careful and watch that and support them both mental health and um, try to foster different avenues for them to engage in sport and engage in their team community um, to to try to not cause some of those secondary effects, but they're certainly possible. You know, I, I was I was wondering. You know, one of the issues um, that I find challenging in this circumstance. Um, perhaps regarding that shared decision-making model that, that Mike has so eloquently described in, in, you know, multiple sources over many years in this particular situation with, with COVID related, let's say confirmed myocarditis, you know, is how to, how to counsel that athlete regarding risk. Um, I don't see it, you know, short of, Identifying true, you know, systolic dysfunction. Other than that, I don't see it as a lifetime disqualifier at all. I mean, I see it as a if you follow guidelines, you know, hopefully this athlete is back playing sports safely in in three months or so, um, if 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 you're following the guidelines. But I do I do find it difficult not knowing exact to say yes. We think there's risk based on what we know about myocarditis, but we just don't have that information yet regarding COVID-related myocardial injury that we're finding on these scans?
1: Yeah, and I think the real answer there is what you said, we just don't know. And I think that's part of shared decision making can also include telling the athlete and the family and the coaches, we just can't tell you the forecast with any sort of guaranteed precision or accuracy. And so in this unknown state, do you return to, if in doubt, kick them out? because we don't have a precise forecast, or do you convey that there is a, that we cannot declare the prognostic pathway with the precision we normally like for etiologies that we have a better handle on, but until we get evidence to the contrary, we're gonna proceed in accordance. So for my own, the, the way I would bring it back is, if I have a SARS-CoV-2 positive athlete who's asymptomatic, and who then passes the American College of Cardiology recommended cardiac test, ECG, echo, troponin, and they're now out of their quarantine window, green light go, you can go back to sport. If you want to add cardiac MRI out of respect for this finding, then different institutions will decide whether to do that, and if they're gonna do that, they better get on their A game to standardize acquisition of protocol to make sure that they have a true cardiac radiologist expert to separate the wheat from the chaff. Otherwise, we will, we will get backbit, thinking we're doing a good test to be ultra sensitive when we then swung the pendulum the other way. So I'm okay if they want to do that, but they better be really careful. So asymptomatic, cardiac cleared, perfect test, back. Symptomatic, where I clinically, John clinically diagnosed them as having myocarditis in the setting of a SARS-CoV-2 infection, that person's not going to be back in sport 14 days after their quarantine's over. Now, they're going to be grounded. Do they stay grounded for three months, which is the guidelines that John was referring to, that you need this three-month hiatus? That's flexible, because honestly, when we wrote that three-month, We pulled three months out of air and said, that's a reasonable time for everybody to be sort of good. Just like pulling a time out of the air so that they weren't gonna say myocarditis on Friday back in the game on Monday. So try to create a concussion like penalty box. And whether that three months is liberated because by one month out, their cardiac tests are now perfectly normalized again um that that's that's something of uh, for discussion for somebody with clinical diagnosed myocarditis for me they would be getting more than ecg troponin and echo that clinical myocarditis would then get a halter would then get a stress test would then get a cardiac mri and they better be six for six clean for them to come back to sport earlier than that provisional
2: three-month um, penalty box yeah, very well, very well said, Mike. And um, I agree, there's been a lot of different recommendations that have come out in terms of how should we be screening our college athletes if they have tested positive for, for COVID, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, um, whether that's prior infection, because we they tested positive, positive with antibody, or whether or not they have a new infection and test positive using, let's say, PCR. And, and there are different guidelines, and, and we've Um, help the NCA with some some algorithms that we've seen them from the ACC and other experts and they're all reasonably similar and also evolving and um, I haven't seen anyone say immediately let's all move to cardiac MRI. I think everyone wants to use reasonable judgment here and we also have to remember that across NCA institutions not everyone has access to echocardiography on a regular basis with good experts who can distinguish athletic heart from Um, something else. Um, And not, you know, in troponin, which costs uh, money and resources and ECG where someone has to interpret it. So those are also important factors. But, you know, all things, um, if you are in my world, if I could create a perfect world, which I, in, in, for me is probably just at my institution where I feel lucky that I have resources around me, both experts and the ability to test how I think is, is clinically indicated, I do exactly what Mike described. I do a really good clinical eval for any ongoing symptoms and we have to be careful because if they were just diagnosed and let's say they have a flu-like illness, they are going to have some potential respiratory symptoms. So Ongoing cardiovascular symptoms to me probably are maybe even beyond the 14-day window that they have some ongoing uh, exercise intolerance or or chest pain or dyspnea with exertion um, beyond their sort of acute infection. Um, I also want to, of course, get, once they're out of their isolation, um, an ECG, troponin, and echo. And again, if if they are now all good, I have no remaining symptoms, ECG, echo, troponin, all normal. Um, then they can return to some, you know, graduated exercise program and be reevaluated and make sure they don't have ongoing symptoms as they return to exercise. And again, if they do, then we have to do more. And um, for me, I would have a very low threshold if any of those things were off or abnormal, or they develop symptoms as they return to exercise to get a cardiac MRI or other tests as it might define for sure.
0: Yeah, those are are great approaches i I appreciate your your expertise on that, and it sounds like you're mostly on the same page from that that aspect of things uh so wrapping up here, uh, I know neither of you has a crystal ball, but if you were to make a prediction based on where we stand today, there's been talk of potential fall sports, potential deferment till spring. Do you think we'll see college athletics this year uh, and it doesn't have to be football. will we see college basketball or? Or anything later on
1: I think for me I'll give the first prediction I think it's gonna be yes no maybe and it's gonna be where are we talking about so all decisions are local uh, local and regional and it's gonna be the things that John said and and if the the various programs uh, are comfortable and confident with their strategies The answer is gonna be yes, because I'm not afraid of this COVID-19 myocarditis signal yet. I need to be convinced. I'm a little bit on the skeptical side about how significant that entity is going to be uh, completely. Um, So the way I would be doing it, as I mentioned the other day, that the college that I'm most familiar right now is Baylor University because my son's a junior there. So as a parent, I've been getting the weekly debriefings from the president of the university as to what their plan is for the entire student body. My son's a non-athlete, and I, my wife and I have gotten ourselves comfortable and confident that he's going back on Monday because we think uh, that it's, it's just as safe as staying here. Now, will we learn that that was a wise move? Will we have to pivot and have him extracted? Will the university realize that they develop an outbreak and then the university that one or any other says it bad idea coming back on campus it's time to go back to distance learning because this thing is nowhere close to the control that we thought we had in our own micro bubble and depending on what those answers are we're going to learn was it yes for big 12 and was the decision no for big 10 or pac-12 Was that a well thought out no, but perhaps an unnecessary no? We won't know that, and but that has set in motion. No, now means so. I can tell you for sure there's not going to be football in Pac-12 right now. So that's a guaranteed no because they declared it as such. The others, some of the others are tentative yeses, and we're going to learn together from this real time experiment, and it is an experiment. It's a real time observation as to was this a reasonable approach was this a wise approach was this potentially not and so i think from those lessons and observations we're going to see the ripple effect uh to the next sport and the next sport and uh, we are going to be coexisting with SARS-CoV-2 for a lot longer than people are chatting about the magical perfect curative vaccine I don't see it on the horizon in my crystal ball as in December 31st, 2020, mass vaccination. I don't see it. So we will have to be figuring out our containment strategies and how important is the heart issue and does that deserve more respect, less respect? Less respect? How good are the point of care antigen testings emerging so that we can know when the battlefield is assembled? Is everybody clean at arrival? Uh, the team, the coaches, the officials, uh, and so forth. And all of those will then shape whether we're getting more and more optimistic about spring 2021 or less optimistic. So it's going to be yes, no, maybe.
2: Great answer. You know, I, I want to remain, uh, that there is some hope that we're going to see college sports this year. And, um, somewhere between January and June Um, and I think it will be very regional dependent and location dependent you know based on how the pandemic is going to be and also our testing resources and and what else we learn and also compliance with mitigation strategies like mask wearing Um, and so um, we'll see how this comes through. I I was alarmed recently to, to hear the director of the CDC uh, inform us to brace for perhaps the worst fall and winter that we've seen in a long long time and that does make me nervous that you know while some conferences many conferences are postponing sports in hope that the pandemic will be in a better place or testing is more available or both and we can proceed with what we what we think will be safer sporting uh, playing fields. Um, it's also possible that we are in a worse place and we just don't know it yet there's 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 the spread of the virus from person to person has been rather certain but everything else about this pandemic has been new um and really hard to predict and i think there is some uncertainty there i think the further we get into 2021 i think i'd be more hopeful that uh, the pandemic will be in a place that we can um, safely move towards some sports, and we might have to be creative in that. There might be conference-only strategies. There might be uh, just uh, small, sort of mini-bubbled tournaments that that teams can go to to, to play in a in a weekend or during a, a one-week period during the winter break, etc. Um, I think we'll have to see how this this pans out. There's 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 a long time uh, between now and 2021, and it seems like. Uh, the the playing field for for COVID-19 is changing just about daily right now.
1: Uh, Devin, I could add to that to John, that the whole part really depends uh, on the collective, we are all in this together mentality for that university and for the community for that university resides. So if a community really wants university sports to happen, and they're not wearing their masks, they're not washing their hands, they're not staying physically distanced. then they actually don't really want the sport to happen because they're not doing their part uh, because we know these measures work. So I would just say to all of those communities who want sports back and want it back quickly, then do the things that work. And, and, and the, the athletes, if they want back in, then they better be following the drill. The non-athletes on the campuses, they, the 18 to 24 invincible ones, they better say we are in this together too and we better be doing the drill. Otherwise, the hope that John is talking about, that's gonna get deflated because if flu season is bad and that's added on top of SARS in the fall and we're not doing these preventative measures very well, uh, then sports postponement uh, is going to become more of the rule than the exception.
0: Well, I thank you guys both so much for uh, kind of letting us behind the curtain uh, into the thought process that goes on in these high-level discussions. I know there's there's a lot that plays into it, and I, I think sometimes it gets oversimplified in the media. Uh, so I think this is extremely helpful for those of us who aren't in those rooms. Uh, I want to thank you again for your, your time and expertise. Do you guys have any parting thoughts?
1: No, uh, thanks for doing this, Devin, and great seeing you, John, and um,
2: we shall see. Yeah, absolutely. appreciate it, Devin. Mike, great to see you, and, and uh hope your family's well and, and stays uh, health and safe, uh, safe and healthy.
0: Thank you so much. And I'd like to thank you, the listener. I hope you found this time valuable and that you'll join us again soon for the next edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent the official policy or position of the AMSSM